Um, so this is really open forum, open discussion. You know, what comes up for you with the things that I talked about? Are there particular points that are worthwhile exploring deeper? Or are there comments or things to share in relationship to what I said? Or your own reflections that got activated? You know, it's an open forum. Yes, please. I was um, listening to when you spoke about the the monastery, the nunnery, as a, a very special place where a kind of consciousness can develop in, in special ways. And my question is, I believe you're not part of that at this time. That's correct. And so then, what have you done? What What is it that has come to fill you uh, that is of value to, um, to balance out that loss? What do you find as a path to yourself? Beautiful question. And, you know, I would say that the, the pathway has been with a lot of tears, you know. So the loneliness that I've experienced has been more excruciating than I have ever known in my life, okay. And so it's not uh, an easy one journey. But I am living next to the Garden of the Gods. And the Garden of the Gods is an ancestral rock formation. There are 150 million-year-old rocks that were part of the first Rocky Mountains. We're on the third set of Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. And I go into the garden, which is like 1,600 acres, with like side canyons and ravines and things like that. And I press my body into these rocks. And I do this every day. And sometimes for many hours, you know. And when I press my body into the rocks, I feel my own consciousness come into a kind of a place of equilibrium with something that is moving towards timeless. Okay? And the rocks, it feels like they hold me. You know? So I let my body melt into the rocks. And I let them hold me. And so in place of a, of a living monastic community that I'm in relationship with, I've moved into relationship with nature and into relationship with the present moment. Because when I'm able to do that with the rocks, I'm also able to do that with myself and my body and the feet and the earth underneath me. And so I don't have to go into the garden. I can just look up at the sky. Or I can just feel myself being connected to the earth right where I am. And that nourishes me. But there's an ache that I navigate. And when I'm not able to go to the rocks, sometimes that ache is so intense, I don't have language for it. You know. So it's a beautiful question. And it puts me right in the middle of my humanity and the kind of enormity of what it is that I'm also navigating. You know, but you know when I come up against my own edges, I'm also aware of my own depth, and so these things somehow move in together. And then, as I'm aware of my own depth, I'm also more able to find ways of collaborating with others. So when there aren't monastics nearby that I feel um, I'm in relationship with, and I'm moving more into relationship with other teachers and other communities. So, you know, I don't know if the Dharma punks that are a part of this group know my connection with the punks, 
But I'll tell you, when I moved to Colorado Springs, I was teaching a day-long retreat, and there were four there were four punks that showed up. And this was the first time I had anything to do with punks. And Kate was on that day-long retreat. And they came up to me and said hello, and I looked at these tattooed kind of strange-looking creatures and was kind and polite, but having no clue, really, as to what the Dharma punks were about. And then something happened, and the group decided to kind of adopt me as their project. And so the Dharma punks were the only group that were interested in seeing that I had any care. Like, not only in the area, like in the country. Like, they were interested that I lived. <laughs> and so there was a, you know, a, a quite a heart connection that developed, partly because I was blown away by why this group of people were showing this kind of care and attention when they had no contact with monastics. You know, it wasn't like they grew up in relationship to the monastics. But it was it was genuine, it was solid, and it was heartfelt, and it was, you know, sustained. And so, you know, the Dharma punks then, you know, really had a lot to do with why I survived the first winter in terms of providing the food and the requisites that were needed. I, you know, the, the support was just absolutely not present otherwise. And I've gotten more clarity as to why the connection is so strong in terms of my own personal story and, you know, standing up to authority and willing to sacrifice everything for conviction and, the you know, the willingness to be an absolute weirdo in the world and feel like, yeah, but that's all right, you know, and to know that, you know, that there's a kind of resonance. So... You know, I've been to many different Dharma punks groups around the country, and there's usually a kind of a chemistry that happens that's just, it's just alive. And I think part of that is because though I come from a tradition and absolutely value it, I also feel the need for evolution. And, you know, some of the stuff that I came from was brilliant, and some of the stuff was rather less than brilliant, you know? And, um, and so, you know, one of the things that was rather less than brilliant was the, was the discrepancy between the men and the women in terms of the monastics and how we were related to in our status and authority and the kind of standing that we had. Not in terms of people, res- in terms of the way it was affecting our psychology, you know. And the other way that it was less than brilliant is, is just that, you know, there are different prejudice lines that were happening. Interestingly enough, you know, there was this weird thing about the monks and the nuns, but the community wasn't homophobic. So, you know, it was quite okay, you know, for many people to, to be queer, that was okay. But for the monks and the nuns, there was this kind of weird thing. So there were all these kind of strange stuff that was happening in the community. But one of the things that was interesting to me over years of being there was is that the lay community were in some ways in a similar position that the nuns were in, which is, is that the monastics were the sole holders of the spiritual authority and wisdom for the community that served everyone. So this was a community where many people would have as that was their that was their community. And yet the monks and the nuns, and mostly the monks, were the most were the people who had the wisdom input into the community. And so even if they had been practicing for 20 years or 30 years, 
no way that their wisdom was invited into the kind of leadership and governance of the way the community operated. And then when, you know, the stuff was hit in the fan, left, right, and center, and the lay community said this is not okay, you know, basically what happened was is that, the, you know, some of the monks said, you know, this is our gig. You guys are fired, you know. So there was a kind of stuff that was going on that does not work in a sustained way to bring about a, a safety and trust and a sense of kind of, you know, transparency and a kind of uh, decision-making process that's needed. So I came with the vision of, of, of another model that embraced the position of women uh, as being fully able to be leaders and, and uh, give voice to the wisdom, but also to include the, the senior lay teachers in the community and the senior lay practitioners in the community, that it wasn't an exclusive right of precepts that we had wisdom, you know. But you see, the vision has a chaos coefficient, which is just out of sight. And so being a visionary, an Aquarian, is like, you know, I have a lot of appreciation why the Buddha was not an Aquarian. <laughs> you know, I'm a visionary, but the kind of practical steps and how to get there, it's like, you know, that's absolutely not my strong set, you know. I don't, I don't see it, you know. I can see the that, but I don't see the steps to get there. So my sense was is to come back and to be in Colorado and to live in the hermitage and to live and to be and to embody and to speak what it is that I feel needs to happen and trust that it is now up to you because I cannot do this by myself. I cannot make this happen by myself. This is something that will arise if people begin to feel that this is really important that this happened. And start moving in the direction of, well, how do we support it and make it happen? And how can we nourish it? And what little bit can I do to contribute to see that this begins to get a little bit of ground and move in that direction? Because what I see is needed is something like a Dhamma village, you know? Well, you've got monastics living there, but in relationship with a community of people who are at various different precept levels and commitments, including families, including kids, you know, so that it's not an exclusive, isolated thing, but there's complexity in it that's just, you know, rich. And so it will take both people having a sense that this is really important as well as people willing to say, you know, this is really important and it's going to be a while until we figure out the mechanisms on how to make it work and it's worth the commitment of the uncertainty and the not knowing and the gristle until we actually allow something to birth that begins to make some sense. Because that's what I see is needed, is a group of people who are committed to making this happen. Small question, big answer. (laughs) Yes, please. You know, Colorado Springs, I heaven help me why Colorado Springs. My father lives in Colorado Springs. And because my father lives in Colorado Springs for 14 years, I've been visiting him and I had some students and they invited me there. So my first place was in the basement of some friend's house, you know, a built out basement. That's where I was staying. 
And, you know, Colorado Springs is an unlikely place. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's a, it's the home of the radical weird right. It's, you know, kind of tremendous military stuff. The Air Force is there. There's Air Force, the NORAD is there, the Peterson Air Force. I mean, there's just a lot of military there. But, you know, whatever happened, you know, the Hermitage was renovated. There was a community effort to make that happen. They've worked on making it chemically sensitive for me. And so, you know, part of it is, is it's the garden of the gods. You know, I'm really sensitive to nature. And part of it is, is my health responds to dry. So, you know, right now with the kind of chemical sensitivities that are going on, mold is like a nightmare. So everywhere damp has got mold, you know, or potentially has got mold. So dry is good, you know. And the rocks is like sitting at the feet of the master. It's like, you know, I spend time with those rocks and my mind just turns into a, a stillness where everything is welcome. There is nothing I bring to those rocks that moves those rocks. They don't move. They don't shake. And they don't reject. They are completely embracing and welcoming. And so for me, those rocks are like, you know, being at the feet of the master, being at, being in community with wise beings, being in a place where you are reminded to let it all be and let it all go and, and come into a loving place of stillness with things as they are. I mean, it's a rented property. It's not purchased so that, you know, the kind of, nothing is solid. But the owner bought the back field and, you know, you know somebody has made an offer to buy material or for a kuti to put on the back field and, you know, the owner wants to build an extension that's got two more bedrooms and a loft in it and he's already renovated the garage so it's a meditation hall so that there's some goodness there. And there's some community there, you know. There's a little bit, you know, there's some that's there. But you're right, it's totally weird, you know. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that struck out from your talk was about the vacillating from the negative. And um, I've been commuting on uh, my bike for four years now. Um, And it's very easy to get really angry and vacillate on the person who cuts you off or calls anger and does something that otherwise pulls me away from my my daily mindfulness practice. And I've actually been trying to part of that practice has been to not vacillate on that one person who impedes on my space, but thank you to be gracious and thankful for the many other people who cross my path who actually give me that space and who honor that my passing. The ones who yield to me um, in, in traffic. And, but it's still been very difficult Right. You know, so Joshua, I think that's a challenge that all of us can resonate with, you know. And one of the things about people who are incredibly considerate is that unless you're really awake, you don't even notice. 
you know, because there's nothing that is registering as being something to pay attention to if somebody's just giving you the space that you need, you know? And so we miss it. So the large number of acts of consideration and care and kindness or the acts of, you know, giving you the space that you need are missed because there's nothing that's agitating or frightening or aggravating or infuriating about people doing that, you know. But if you count the number of times that people do that, you know, I would imagine the numbers are actually quite substantial. And so, you know, it's really helpful to deliberately can think of the ways people have been caring and kind that have not, you know, been not with bright smiles, but just because they, they haven't cut you off, you know. And then when somebody does cut you off, then there's a whole way of being with that in a way where you're not cutting your own response mechanisms off, but you're, you're, you're attending to them without, without um, indulging in them. You know, and as soon as you see that you're indulging in them, you move out of that into something that's much more wholesome. You know, and you know, for myself, it usually often ends up being other primary patterning that I'm opening up that needs attending to. You know, because it isn't the person that cut me off. It was, you know, usually something that happened when I was a child that was infuriating that I wasn't able to resolve because I felt powerless, or whatever it is. You know, I'm just saying that off the top of my head. You know. And so what I've needed to learn how to do is to drop the trigger and go to the cause. You know, so if I'm triggered into something that's touching a primary pattern that's about early childhood stuff, I need to go right into that pattern and attend to myself with the care and kindness that I didn't get. You know, blow off the car. That's not what's happening. But it certainly can grab your attention and you can chew on it for a long enough time to distract you from what's happening, you know. But for me, when I've been able to do that and shift my focus that way, then it shifts out much, much, much faster and I can resolve it much quicker. So it's not, you know, the kind of long, drawn-out, chewed-out thing because I'm right exactly with what's actually happening. I've got triggered because there's a primary pattern that's activating and I need to attend to it right there, like that, you know. But, you know, I can, you know, that decades of not doing that, you know, and the machinations of grabbing onto the trigger because I wouldn't have the capacity or the resource to go to the cause. So you also have to give yourself a break for that, you know. And then give yourself a break and also use that as the courage to go, what's actually this about? And how can I touch that? You know, how can I meet that with a with a respect in a way that was is really honoring? Yes.
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well, my goodness. There's nothing quite like being shunned from a community to appreciate the pain of that and also to understand how incredibly vital it is that we learn how to make a space that's safe enough for people to be who they are and to meet it, you know, to meet what's arising and to respond. When a community has that capacity, you've got something that is so valuable. It is so unbelievably valuable. I mean, it comes with no small effort. I mean, it's a huge effort to to navigate the territory, to be able to do that. But for people to genuinely feel that they can bring what is alive for them and that there's the safety to navigate differences without people being ostracized or shunned, or it's huge. Because it means that you're not on your own to do this work. You are in a fabric that will hold you. And when you know that, you have access to a depth that you absolutely don't have when you don't have that. And so, you know, it is hard work developing trust and safety in a community. It's hard work navigating conflicts and people's different ideas about what is supposed to be and what is not supposed to be and how do you decide and who gets to decide and what happens to all the people who are on the other side. You know? But when that is done with grace and skill and, and honesty, and the community grows as a result of it rather than fractures and splinters and turns into some kind of a, I don't know what, you know, it's just, it's unbelievably valuable. And all I can say is, is that, you know, this was my experience living with nuns. This is that it wasn't safe for a very long time living with nuns because of some of the complexity of the political situation that we were in the middle of and the way that was being acted out. But over a long process and with enormous amount of effort, you know, the sisters did the work to create safety. And and it, it was really, you know, it was hard won. It was not easy territory. But when we did, what we also developed was the capacity to be with the enormous diversity of what we were bringing into the space and to hold it in a way where we were able to see that people were received and, and their needs were met. Now, obviously, you know, we never perfected this to the point where there was no conflict. That was not what we arrived at. And we had dysfunction and personality disorders in our group, just probably like most everybody else does, you know. But the difference between being in a group that was really feeling safe and not was just enormous. And, you know, what each of us was able to do in terms of processing our own primary patterning and our own basic traumas and all the rest of it, when that safety was there, was orders of magnitude different than when it wasn't. So the stuff that's needed in order to create the safety, to do the work in order to wake up, depends on a fabric of safety that you can relax into. It's fundamental. And so my goodness, you know, when you feel like, wow, when you feel betrayed, or when you feel shunned, or when you feel shamed, you know, to have the courage to show up for that, to process it until it shifts, takes a lot. 
But when it's possible, then what you have is just something that's hugely valuable. So, you know, my hope is, and my encouragement is, is is that even though, you know, I I travel and teach and there isn't a kind of community that I'm in the middle of, that as I do what I do and, you know, the kind of things that I offer, the teachings or the Sunday morning conference calls or, you know, the various things that I do, that people, wherever they are, beginning to feel a resonance with this and bring these skills and bring this valuing to wherever they are so that this can begin to start emerging. So I'd like to close here. Is that all right? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.